Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Welcome to our podcast today. Today we're going to be looking at Matthew 23, 1 through 12, and I think it's a really troubling passage for us. So, Alan, why don't you uh, take it away? Well, it is uh, indeed. Um, our, our gospel lesson this week is the introduction to one of the most troubling chapters in all of the gospel tradition. It's a series of woes that Jesus pronounces on the scribes and Pharisees that lead up to his final lament over Jerusalem and declaration of judgment. And it has been called the unloveliest chapter in the gospel by Benedict Viviano, who was a Dominican uh, New Testament scholar. Uh, And I I think that's a pretty apt um, title for it, the unloveliest chapter in the gospel. That's uh, that that makes it tough, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. does. The gospel, the good news. And this is what the the bad news. Uh, It's it's (laughs) yeah, it's it's I think it really has a lot to do with Matthew's um, intentions and and Matthew's agenda. And we're going to see maybe um, not quite what we would think on the on the surface of things. So how does Matthew relate this to the other Gospels? Well, and you know, all through the Gospels here, especially Synoptic Gospels, we look at the connection between Matthew and the other Gospels, and here it's really quite complicated. On the surface, it's clear that Matthew does here what he does elsewhere. He combines traditions from Mark and Q and frames them with his own interpretation. We've seen that time and time and time and time. But a closer comparison of Matthew and Luke raises a number of questions. While they both have a series of seven woes, they differ markedly in both their structure and their wording. And that's that's a quote from Ulrich Lutz's commentary on Matthew. And in fact, Lutz sees this passage as one of two in the Gospels posing the greatest difficulties for the theory of Q. So the, the you know the, the 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 whole point about Q is that it's the material that Matthew and Luke have in common. Well, this is material that Mac and Matthew and Luke have in common, but it's very different in Matthew and Luke. But is that just because Matthew was trying to frame it to his own setting? That's the problem. We we don't know, you know, mm-hmm. and and it's it's. I mean, you could you could speculate, but but the evidence itself is very confusing. And and as he said, it, it poses one of the greatest obstacles to the theory of Q as a written document that that Matthew and Mark uh, that Matthew and Luke both made use of. Something, Alan, I want to point out to folks, which I'm very appreciative of. One of the things that we're pretty careful about is not to jump to conclusions when we don't have the evidence yeah. and. Um, as I've been doing a lot of Bible studies with folks who are looking at various um, commentaries, sometimes they come in with assumptions about things mm-hmm. without having the evidence. And I have to step back and say, we, and we don't actually know that. And I just think that's something for us to keep in mind because it's pretty, it's pretty easy to assume something. Like I just asked Alan, can, is this, is this Matthew's, you know, putting it there? Well, we don't know. Right. And I think, I think, to put something else into that then can actually really skew something into an assumption about it. Well, and of course, and just our to, reformers do that all the time. Of That's course they do. Of course thing. they do. And, and just to just to to follow up a little bit on the aside, you know, it depends on the level of commentary. 
Uh, Ulrich Lutz is a technical commentary. It's mm -hmm. very academic, very scholarly. It's, you know, one of the best, you know, commentaries on Matthew. Um, there are other commentaries that are more popular, and popular right. commentaries aren't going to go into that depth of analysis. So I they see. may they may draw conclusions. That doesn't mean necessarily that a popular commentary uh, hasn't that the scholar hasn't actually looked into these questions. It just I means that they're not. That's not the right uh, venue to to, right, to, right. to to approach those questions. It would well, be like talking about this kind of stuff in a sermon, you know. Well, and we do that in a sermon to some extent, but when we're really trying to get at a real in-depth study, I think we have to we have to peel it back a little bit mm -hmm. sometimes and ask those questions of, do we know this? Is yeah. is this is this true? And yeah, um, yeah. So anyway, um, uh, anyway, very interesting here. So moving on, then um, let's talk a little about about Matthew's structure. Then, yeah, and and one of one other consideration we have to think about with chapter twenty three is the function of this chapter and the overall structure of Matthew's gospel. Uh, as we've discussed, Matthew's gospel has a unique structure, alternating narrative and discourse sections. The question is whether this chapter is meant to be read as narrative or discourse. Uh, many see it as part of the narrative of Jesus' interaction with the Jewish religious leaders at the temple, which is suggested by the statement that Jesus came out of the temple in Matthew 24.1. And th so there's no question that, that Matthew 23 takes place in the temple. Um, and, and so those folks then view chapter 24 as Matthew's version of the eschatological discourse. So it's chapter 24 that's the discourse, or perhaps even chapter 24 and the parables chapter in chapter 25. Gene Boring, however, in his New Interpreter's Bible uh, commentary, suggests that chapter 23 is part of what he calls a longer judgment discourse that includes not only the woes pronounced here, but also the eschatological discourse proper in chapter 24 and the chapter of parables about judgment in chapter 25. And he bases that primarily on thematic connections between the three chapters. Um, and, you know, given, given the importance of judgment as a theme in Matthew's understanding of the kingdom of God, as well as Jesus' ministry, I'm inclined to agree with him. Um, I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. So, um, obviously, this is highly polemical language. Let's talk about that. Yeah, and 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 we should really should address um, the, that that feature of this chapter and the issue of to, to whom it was directed. Now, first, throughout the chapter, the phrase "quote the scribes and the Pharisees" is used as a reference to the Jewish religious leaders, and it gives the impression that the scribes and the Pharisees were more closely linked than they may actually have been. There were apparently some scribes who were also Pharisees, but most Pharisees weren't scribes, and not all scribes were Pharisees. And there's no evidence that they were like, you Interesting. know, almost joined at the hip, like this, this seems to mm -hmm. almost imply. Second, the polemical accusations against them in this chapter are at best generalizations and at worst conventional stereotypes. Yeah. <laughs> And so it would be a mistake to conclude that Matthew is painting a portrait of the scribes of the Pharisees that was historically accurate, despite the fact that there is some basis in fact for some of the practices addressed. And so, I mean, like, like using the term rabbi or using the term 
Abba or Father for right, right. for respected teachers. So there is some basis, in fact, for some of what's discussed here. But we really should not conclude that Matthew is painting an ac- a historically accurate portrait mm-hmm, of Jewish right. leaders. Most of the accusations were matters. In, in fact, most of the accusations were matters that the scribes and the Pharisees themselves would have criticized. And we have evidence that the rabbis address some of these same concerns. So, um, you know, that, I think that's a pretty important observation that, to realize that, that, you know, this wasn't something that they were oblivious to. More likely, Matthew was probably not really thinking primarily about the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day, but he's thinking about the emerging rabbinic mo- movement in Judaism after the destruction yeah. of the temple in 70 CE. Absolutely. That was the group yeah. that, was in, that was in charge of the synagogues right. and that, that were basically the, the rivals to Matthew's community. And you could see, you know, that's something we haven't talked about. Those who had lived in that time would have been uh, confused, uh, anxious about this new movement. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot going on there that sure. that you that would cause anxiety. Well, so and, I can see that that being coming in. I mean, it. even in the Roman world, one of the questions was, what do they do with this this Jewish Christian sect? Because is it is it a sect of Judaism or is it something unique? And, yeah. What is it? Yeah. And, yeah. And even obviously Judaism itself forced to change because of the destruction of the temple. So, right. 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 So all kinds of, uh, yeah, a lot of things going on. Un- yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so moving on that, um, uh, what, what do you think about the accusations? Against well, the I think we should note that the kinds of accusations brought against the quote unquote scribes and the Pharisees, or, or really probably more realistically, Matthew's rabbinic Jewish opponents, truly represent conventional and stereotypical polemics used against opponents. For example, Josephus rails against the zealots, whom he blamed for the Roman war against the Jewish people. And the Dead Sea Scrolls don't hesitate to use similar accusations to the ones we find in this chapter against the seekers after smooth things. There's this group that, that is identified right. as the seekers after <laughs> yeah. smooth things. The, the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, they lead, they'd separate from the Jewish, the, the Jewish establishment in Jerusalem because they consider it to be corrupt. And the seekers after smooth things, most historians identify them as the Pharisees, <laughs> ironically. <laughs> I've heard that the Essenes were considered part of that group. Is that well, the Essenes, the Essenes um, the I mean, they have traditionally it. been identified with the Qumran community, yes. But, yeah. but basically, yeah. in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, we, we have, we have sim- very similar accusations to the ones that we find here in, mm-hmm. in Matthew chapter 23 against the Pharisees. And, right. and they're called the seekers after smooth things. Smooth things, and, and actually, most of the accusations in this chapter have par- parallels in polemics found in Philo, Josephus, the Psalms of Solomon, and other apocryphal documents of the intertestamental era, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and even the Talmud uh, has some mm-hmm. similar polemics. So it really, I think what we should realize, you know, in, in a modern day, one of the problems is people say, "Well, this is Matthew's anti-Semitism." No, this is mm-hmm. intra-Jewish polemic. It's yes, not yes. anti-Semitism because if Matthew was a Jewish Christian, you know, it's it's sort of an oxymoron to say that he was anti-Semitic. Right, right. Yes, and and thank you. And 
that word anti-Semitism, we might want to deal with that later today. But yes, that indeed. Has some, that has a lot of overtones, too. Well, um, there's a difference. Here. There's a difference between the original setting of this text and the way it has been used in the history of, of the yes. world. Yeah. Yes. So how does Matthew then begin the discourse? So Matthew begins the discourse by shifting the audience from the Pharisees in chapter 22 to the crowds and his disciples. And the implication is that Jesus is still in the temple, and there's Mm -hmm. no reason to think that the Jewish religious leaders who were silenced by Jesus in the previous episodes were no longer present. I think they were probably still listening in to to what he had to (laughs) say. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. so, so moving on then, um, how does it begin? So the first section of our lesson is a unit in Matthew 23, 2 through 7, and it addresses specific criticisms against the Jewish religious leaders or, again, in, in Matthew's context, likely the rabbis in the synagogues. Um, in, in Matthew 23, 2 through 7 reads, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, therefore do what they teach you and follow it, but do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. That's Matthew 23, 2 through 3. So because the, the, the leaders sat on Moses' seat, which perhaps was an actual seat in the synagogues of Matthew's mm. day, we have archaeological evidence of a seat uh, in later synagogues. And so some think that that might um, um, be an indication that there was an actual seat in the synagogues of Matthew's day. But because they sat on Moses' seat, they spoke with authority. However... It is really hard to reconcile Matthew having Jesus actually tell the crowds, let alone his disciples, to do and keep whatever they teach, especially in light of his criticisms of their teachings elsewhere in Matthew. I mean, and Matthew has some of the most um, extensive criticisms of the the teachings of the Jewish religious leaders of all the Gospels. So, uh, uh, you know, it seemed on first glance, you know, it seems strange to hear Matthew have Jesus say, you know, do and keep whatever they teach. Uh, It would seem clear that the point of the statement was really the last part of the statement. Do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. Mm -hmm. So the first clause, do whatever they teach you and follow it, simply sets up the main point. And Mm -hmm. it it may have had the force of a concession. You know, if you think it, if you think it necessary do do and oh. keep what they what they teach or I never it, thought of it that way or it it could have been you know the 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 fact that it's whatever they teach literally all that they may teach that may have been an intentional hyper, hyperbole so in other words it wasn't literally meant to say every single thing right right and right. and and we should we should note that hyperbole is a characteristic of the polemics of this chapter Yes. Oh, that's very interesting. Okay, so there's another criticism. How does that follow? So the second criticism really follows a similar line. Not only do the religious leaders not practice what they teach, but they also tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. That's verse 4. Now, the heavy burdens here is likely a reference to the traditions of the elders, or what some may know as halakha, which were rabbinic rulings on concrete ways to fulfill or break the commands of the Torah. 
And many of these traditions would have presupposed that one had the ability to devote one's entire life to keeping the Torah. But most of the people of the land, or the common people, whom the religious leaders generally despised, would not have been able to do that. So we can see where Matthew was coming from here in this criticism about their traditions, uh, their halakha being heavy burdens. And I think Matthew's audience would remember that in contrast to the heavy burdens the Jewish religious leaders laid on others, Jesus said that his burden is light and his yoke is easy in Matthew 11.30. The problem here, however, is not only the burdensome nature of the rabbinic traditions, but more importantly, that they were not willing to keep their own traditions. So this is really another version of the charge that they did not practice what they taught. So finally, there's one additional criticism. Yeah, he says they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have people call them rabbi. And that's verses 5 through 7. Now, we should note that only Matthew 23, 6 has a parallel in Mark and Luke. In Mark, and, Mark 12, 38 and 39 and Luke 20, 46, those are, those are parallel. They're, they're they're truly parallels. But this is the only place where we have any connection between, between Matthew's introductory section and the rest of the gospel tradition in terms of a clear like um, parallel, right. which, again, points to the idea that this introduction is, is from the pen of Matthew. You know, Matthew yeah. is composing yeah. here. So, in other words, the criticism here is that whatever piety they practiced was for the sake of re the recognition they received for it. Now, phylacteries were also known as tefillin, or they were capsules that were strapped onto the head or the left arm and contained important scripture passages. The fringes of the tassels that were to be worn as a reminder, they, they were to be worn as a reminder of the commandments, according to Numbers chapter 15 and Deuteronomy 22. And of course, the places of honor, the best seats in the synagogue, greetings in the marketplace, and the title rabbi were all ways in which they received recognition for their status. And Matthew's audience, I think, will also remember what Jesus said about practicing their piety right. in private uh, in Matthew 6, um, 6, verses 1 through 18, where he talks about giving alms yeah. and prayer and fasting. Right, right. By contrast, then, you know, the, the criticism here is that they do all their deeds just to be seen by others. Just to be seen, right, which, yeah. is, a, which is a theme that we see in the scriptures, right? Mm -hmm. so, especially uh, in Matthew, yeah. Especially, yes, especially in Matthew. So the next section, um, how, does that, how does that work? Well, it's also another unit, uh, Matthew 28, verses 8 through 12. And here Matthew has Jesus address the disciples. And again, most of this, uh, there, there are a couple of sayings that I think we can pretty confidently attribute to Jesus, but most of this content is unique to Matthew. Now this gives us, an, and I think also this section gives us an important clue about the purpose and function of Matthew 23, and perhaps even the entire judgment discourse in Matthew's setting. Mm -hmm. In contrast to the things that the scribes and the Pharisees, or that is the rabbinic teachers of the synagogues opposed to Matthew's community, in, in contrast to the things that they love, quote-unquote, that's what Matthew says, Matthew has Jesus instruct his disciples to regard one another with humility, equality, and solidarity as brothers and sisters. And we should note, that's the, Matthew, that's the translation of Matthew 23.8 in the, in the new RSV updated edition. The oh. original new RSV has students, because the Greek word is brothers, 
and they were uh, trying to make it gender neutral. And right. I, again, I think they botched it there. <laughs> it, it, interesting. Would it have included women, or was it truly, um, or was it truly regarding just men? No, it would have included women. Of course, it exactly. Would. Of course, it would. Exactly. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, there were men so, and women in the community. That's what I thought. <laughs> and and, well, and I we thought. know from, so, from elsewhere in the New Testament, there are men and women leaders in the community. So, But you don't like brothers and sisters. No, I do. No, I do. Oh, I, oh, I didn't oh, like, yeah, I didn't like students in the original oh, NRSV because it, it. it doesn't have the same, it doesn't have the same connotation as brothers and sisters. I the agree. idea is a I, familial I, connection. I agree. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sorry about that. I misunderstood. No okay. That's okay. So, uh, there, so there's instruction. Yeah, and, and right? the whole this whole section really from Matthew 25, um, 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 I guess Matthew 25 8. Uh, this is eight through eight through ten. This is all of a piece. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers and sisters. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father, the one in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. That's Matthew 23, 8 through 10. Now, again, while it's true that Jesus did not refer to himself as rabbi, nor did he seek that title, by the time of Matthew's gospel, it was a commonly used title of a teacher, basically. Mm -hmm. And rabbi could, could be just the same as teacher. Interestingly, the title Abba, or Father, was beginning to be used as an honorific for respected uh, rabbis. And of course, later on, it will be used for respected leaders in the church. You know, we mm-hmm. talk about the church fathers, the Abbas, right? Right. right. <laughs> and so um, um, this was something that actually was, was going on very likely at the time of Matthew's gospel. Now, the rationale here is theological and Christological. In Matthew's gospel, God is their one and only father, and Jesus is clearly the one teacher of the community of disciples. Um, and I believe it's Lutz who, who, who raises the question of whether Matthew's community would have heard echoes of the Shema here. Oh. One father, right? You have one mm-hmm. father. You have one teacher, the Messiah. Uh, you have one instructor. And, um, um, you know, we, we, we see in the New Testament that the emphasis on one God can be expanded to include one Lord Jesus without really feeling like there was any um, a diminishing of the monotheist, the basic monotheistic premise of mm-hmm. the Shema. Yeah. Let me ask a question there, um, simply because I've had, you know, folks in the church say this is so offensive because they have a father, they have a, a, a human father, um, which I don't, I think they're missing the point of yes. the text. Yeah, this is talking about t- honorific titles in the church. So, um, you know, this is talking about um, recognition and titles. And, and, you know, basically Matthew is is urging his community to resist the desire for titles and recognition that is is so common to humanity, especially in religious circles, right? (laughs) Right, right, right. I'm so, Reverend Doctor. Thank you very much. Yeah, right? well, exactly, exactly, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, how does Matthew summarize this? Well, he summarizes it in verse eleven and twelve. The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, here Matthew draws on a variant of a saying found um, uh, in Matthew twenty twenty six. Again, very likely from Jesus to reiterate that brothers and sisters in the community of the disciples are to relate to each other with humility as servants. 
they are equal in the community and there's no room for prestige, structures of authority, or titles of honor. And so he concludes in verse 12 with what some would consider a roving saying of Jesus that was well known to the church. And a roving saying means, you know, it's fairly clearly established as a, as a saying of Jesus in the oral tradition, but it had a hard time finding um, a consistent placement in the gospel, in the written gospel tradition. And that's true. That's true of this of Matthew uh-huh. twenty three twelve. Oh, makes sense. Yeah. So, so, do you have any final thoughts about this? Well, I think so. I mentioned earlier that that perhaps this um, this address to the disciples might give us a clue as to the function of Matthew twenty three and perhaps even the whole judgment discourse. This focus on equality, humility, and solidarity, as opposed to self seeking or a desire for recognition or prestige on the part of the leaders of the community, suggests that already in Matthew's community, some of the dynamics that are attributed to the quote-unquote scribes and Pharisees were emerging in Christian leadership at the time of Matthew's gospel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When we remember that the polemic of this chapter is conventional and stereotypical, and the the fact that the rabbis themselves would have criticized many of the same behaviors, right? The point of this passage then is not really to criticize the Jewish religious leaders, either of Jesus' day or Matthew's day. And it's really, for us, it's not really uh, for us to take and use it against other religious leaders, right? But really, the the, the intent seems to be on Matthew's part to warn the leaders of his community against falling into the traps that inevitably come with leadership in any religious community. Mm. And so, you know, Davies and Allison suggest that rather than using it to criticize others in religious leadership, whether it's people of other religions or whether it's between the Catholic and Protestant divide or whether it's people of other Protestant denominations, um, this text is extended, uh, this text is intended to stimulate self-examination on the part of Christian leaders is their, is their way they worded. And I think that's, I think that's really spot on that, that, um, the, you know, yes, this may have reflected the tension between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders, um, uh, in his day, and and we we see that as a theme, and we're going to see that in in Matthew's gospel. Right. Um, you know that tension um, leads up to um, Jesus' death on the cross, right? But mm-hmm. um, we have to remember that Matthew was writing this gospel for a community and had purposes. Uh, had things he wanted to communicate to that community also, and it seems like maybe that that was yeah, the that point of this was to was to warn the Christian leaders of his community against falling into these pitfalls. Yeah, I see that. I see that, yeah. and that I think that makes it a much healthier text when we look at it that way yeah. than than its ugliness, which right on can the surface of things, so, right the way it yeah. has and the way it has been used in the history of the world. Yeah, right, right. Well, I um, I'm going to come back later here and talk about uh, Jews in their in during the Reformation a little bit of a, um, a dis a, a, a little bit of a, a, a different direction for us, but um, I think it'll help us within the next several uh, pieces that we do make some sense about some of the approaches that the uh, that they took in the Reformation. Okay, thanks. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and uh, we're going to let Christy uh, talk to us about what she found regarding the attitudes of the Jewish, uh, the Protestant relig- uh, reformers toward the Jewish people. Yeah, I know this is a little bit of a divergence from what we usually do, 
But I thought this might be a good opportunity to talk about um, the attitudes of the Protestant reformers towards the Jews, in part because this scripture has a lot of negative Jewish sentiment. And obviously, it's as we've talked, this is a leadership thing, but often that gets all wrapped into one in terms of kind of anti-Jewish mm -hmm. polemic. Mm -hmm. What is interesting, though, that at least at least in the analysis of the scripture, both Luther and Calvin will use this as a hope that Jews will eventually accept Christ. Hmm, so very different than you think. Yeah. Um, now, um, they understand, actually, if they're using this as a polemical text at all, it tends to, to attack the excesses of the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, I the read that. There. Yeah, I read that that uh, that uh, that that they applied the term Pharisee or they applied the criticisms of this text to to their own opponents and not to yeah. the Jewish people. Yeah. Right, right. Which might be more in line with with what Matthew has in mind about warning about leadership in a way, but um, nonetheless, um, this uh, what we do learn is this kind of underlying idea that Jews will accept Christ. Mm -hmm. But that's only part of the picture of the of the reformers. And I want to give you more background into the whole history of um, Jews during the Middle Ages and in, through the Reformation. So I could give you a clear idea of where this is coming from. So sure. Um, I want to use also I think it's also important today, as I said, right now, um, and a kind of contemporary context to think about this with this war between Israel and Gaza. Um, this reality is that anti-Semitism is part of the Christian tradition from its founding. Uh, so when the reformers are making these um, kind of hopeful claims against the Jews or, or for the Jews, it's really, it's really hopeful, but it's still embedded in this kind of core anti-Semitism. Mm. It's like, it's not, Fully that they want to accept Jews as being Jews, but rather that if they, because Christ came for all people, then obviously they would become Christians. Right. So it's still very yeah. So their their positive attitude is toward the 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 potential for them to become Christians. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So um, the way that anti-Semitism makes its way into the early modern period, actually, and into the Protestant Reformation, has two themes. So when we look at the Holy Land today, we're going to be very modern. We have a Jewish state, Israel, that was formed from the mandate system following World War One, which then after the Holocaust became a rallying cry for Western nations to give the Jews a state in the land that they recognized as home. And this, of course, was also the same dream was possessed by the Palestinians, who were the ones that were actually living there at the time Israel was made. And they, like the Jews, were also under the mandate system. And they were promised a country of their own, but it never happened. The result ended up with a, a Jewish state, but not a Palestinian state. And then there was ultimately the war of 1967 and Israel claiming more and more of the land that Palestinians possess for themselves. And this led, of course, to the current situation and the years of battling over land and resources. Very short history. So I'm using the comp contemporary context to go back further into the history and attitude towards Jews in the Middle Ages. So in the Middle Ages, the Jews were generally tolerated, and they lived throughout Europe, mostly in the free cities. They had by this time already started practicing trade with, with Christian, trades that Christians would not engage in. 
So many of the guilds would not allow Jewish members, and they had practices that were uniquely, uniquely Jewish, mostly as traders and moneylenders. By the high Middle Ages, the rising power of the church conflicted with the Jews. Several things happened that isolated them. First, the rise of the medieval church and its increasingly controlling bureaucracy, the Reconquista, and the rise of the Spanish Inquisition and the Crusades. Mm. And while the Crusades and the Reconquista focused mainly on Muslims, or Muslims who had become Christians, known as the Moriscos, the Jews and the Jews and the Conversos, the Jews that had been forced to become Christians, became part of the question. So there was this mixed message, even in the Middle Ages, about protecting the religion that was the forerunner of Christianity, as well as to why the Jews had not become mm, Christian. Interesting. Well, and my understanding is that in the in the lands that uh, in the part of Spain that was controlled by uh, Muslims, at least initially, there was there was toleration for both Jews and Christians um, um, because they were people of the book. Yes. Yeah. People get really excited about that. They're called Dimis, D-H-I-M-M-I, mm-hmm. because there was this toleration. But you have to make a, a very, it's, it's not run like there were toleration of Jews in Christian lands. This is not a sense of equality no, and everybody getting along. No, it was this in the is, Muslim, it was in the Muslim place, in the Muslim places that they were, that the toleration was I, I was know, but there. that's still what I'm trying to say is that this was a, a, a toleration, it did not mean equality. No, it right, right. We put up with barely. Right. Jews were forced, Jews and Christians were both forced to wear um, identifying clothing. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. yeah. It's not It's not this kind of dream happy place that people want to make it mm-hmm. to be. It was mm-hmm. not equality. Right. It was not equal trade. It was, yeah, we'll, not, we'll try not to kill you. I mean, that's really <laughs> what it came to. So I just want to make sure that people understand this sure. is not the kind of freedom it's, it's not religious like pluralism <laughs> exactly yeah. exactly yeah. that's really important and many many people by the way during the during andalus um would convert to islam because it was to your advantage you've mm-hmm. got many advantages mm-hmm. <laughs> besides just the other status was yeah we won't kill you <laughs> right? right i mean right. Right. so be careful just be careful with that that's gotten kind of taken out of context sure. into making it sound like as you said some kind of religious yeah. Pluralism. Yeah. So by the time we hit reach the Reformation, we have a couple situations at hand. There was an increased interest in knowledge, including right. the Hebrew scriptures and in Hebrew. And we, we right. talk about the emergence of Greek, but Hebrew was also of great interest. And so just remind us, until this time, the Latin Vulgate was the standard text used by the church. Um, the interest in languages emerged with the Northern Renaissance this interest in both Greek and Hebrew. So Hebrew scholars, i.e. Jews, were revered. Yeah, the only, the only people who knew Hebrew were the Jewish scholars. <laughs> yep. On the other hand, we have a fear of those who are different. And most Jews by this time were pretty much secluded into Jewish ghettos. Mm. There was not a ton of interaction with Jews and Christians except by the scholars um, or, to some extent, traders. And the traders and moneylenders were considered usurers and therefore doing the opposite Mm. of what the Bible commanded. It also contributed to anti-Jewish sentiment. So this led to an understanding that this, quote, white guy is okay, the scholar, but all those Jews who live in the ghetto, they are questionable. Right. And they were and they were then furthermore became caught up in, in all of this 
all of this Christian polemic and fear, and they were accused of torturing the host, mm-hmm. in other words, <laughs> the body of Christ, the host, and this idea that they could torture Christ. Even, even in the Middle Ages. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I think we tend to do this today with different, different ethnic groups. This is not... Sure. This is part of kind of our human makeup, unfortunately. I, I think I it's it- interesting, though, that they 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 extend, you know, the whole um, uh, the Jewish people as the ones who were tormentors of Christ into their into their time, as if somehow by 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 their interactions with the church, they were tormenting the 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 body of Christ still. <laughs> I, so the things I didn't write in my notes to talk about, but. You know, there was always had to be a scapegoat, mm-hmm. and the Jews were the easy scapegoat. Oh, sure. And so here is the Black Death coming by, right? Mm-hmm. And the Jews who have such better cleanliness practices than Christians aren't dying, oh. but the Christians are dying. Wow. So, well, they must have done something to do this to us, mm-hmm. because why wouldn't they be dying? Right. And so that that's part of the, that catches on as well that these Jewish communities are surviving the plague but the Christian communities are not. Wow. And so yeah, wow. yeah, so the plague all comes into that too. Um So um it's scriptures such as this one and the woes that follow that can fall in, into criticism of the Jews. Yeah. And it got worse as the reformation moved mm, forward. I can believe that. Interestingly enough, so we have kind of the open ideas of the the beginning of the Reformation, and then as the confessions start to become more rigid, the act, the act, the the attitudes toward the Jews actually start to decline. Mm-hmm. So just as Luther expected people to hear the gospel and to the true church, he felt Jews would do the same. So we get this idea that Jews should be protected; they were the little brothers, mm. and would eventually see the truth of the gospel. But when this didn't happen, then they became more and more skeptical of mm. them. Why can't well, they see the truth? And I think of the, I think of the, um, is it the, is it the Scots Confession is the one that has all the we detest and we, we, <laughs> you know, all the all these people that are that are heretics and and yep, yep. you know, different and all of that. <laughs> yeah. And so Calvin himself had something similar to Luther, although he never became as anti-Jewish as Luther. But he um, he says, look, the Jews are prone to idolatry and, mm. and uh, they're fa- they failed to live righteously. However, he had heart for them as he claimed they rejected Christ out of ignorance, not mm. malice. Mm. Um, and I'm quoting that from um, Bruce Gordon's Calvin. So as we have read in the Institutes, the ability to see the final fruition of Christ could only be dimly seen in the practices of the Old mm. Testament law. So he's so taken law, a salva- salvation history approach to it. That, that yes, by yes. definition, the law was was not able to to provide the complete uh, truth. Ex- yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So the law was intended to bring all people to Christ right. in the end. Right. So in Calvin's world, the Jews should be <laughs> honored, and that Christians should not persecute the do- mm. Jews. Luther, however, despite what I talked about at the beginning, his his attitude actually shifts. And it totally makes sense with Luther. Remember, I've taught you before that Luther really visualized as soon as everyone has scripture in hand and mm-hmm. can read it for themselves, they're going to accept the truth. Well, that didn't happen in the, for the Christians, and it doesn't happen for the Jews either. 
So he becomes very caught up in the popular piety of the time and the accusations of blood libel that oh persisted. <laughs> Luther, Luther changed, as I said, changed these views as he went. And so one of the famous ones, and I'm going to recount this story um, that is reported by a very, very famous Reformation scholar, uh, Ronnie Shaw. He's a professor at Penn State, highly, highly respected. But he tells this one of a Jewish boy named Simon. Uh, Count was well known and probably just went like wildfire throughout the gossip <laughs> chain. Sure. Um, that was found um, dead. And um, so the body was discovered in 1475 in Trent. And the Christians, not making sense of his disappearance and death, accused Jews of ritual murder and actually arrested and executed most of the Jewish men in the city. Wow. For this. And Luther, Luther totally bought into this, and so did many other reformers. Wow. So, oh, the suspicions we had were right, because here's this example of this boy who died, and the only explanation is those people over there. So they scapegoating. So, wow. Now, <laughs> I think it's easy to be highly critical, um, but I think what we are seeing is a result of an age that is still greatly influenced by superstition and fear of the unknown. Mm -hmm. And it's compounded with human nature to scapegoat. Um, and it led to this atrocity. Well, I mean, that's, that's human nature hasn't changed in that regard yep. today. <laughs> exactly. We still have this going on today. Yeah. When we, when we talk about social media and all the false claims and the rabbit holes we go down with myth and people just jump into that stuff yep. and um it's it's so it's still going on right yeah so just to conclude i think that luther and calvin and others were really perplexed as to why in their minds the obvious truth of the gospel why the jews wouldn't wouldn't adopt that when and they would continue to hold on to this jewish doctrine and tradition and like the roman catholics they couldn't really wrap their brains around the concept of religious toleration and therefore this relationship with the jews is so conflicted they are assisted in this polemic by the handful of jews who do convert mm. and they encourage this behavior oh, my. So, there's, oh wow. yes. <laughs> so while we are talking about the jews in today's podcast it is the same attitude that led them to attack anabaptists muslims and ultimately each other right so the difference is that this jewish polemic would continue to be part of western tradition until the Holocaust, and, and frankly, until today. Sure, absolutely. Thanks, Christy. That's what I have, yep. Thanks. Everyone, we're back. And we uh, thought we'd talk a little bit about the nature of Matthew's community or the potential nature of it and why he might have written this text, which we have identified as being uniquely Matthew's voice, wondering if some of the constructs of power um, are starting to emerge within his community. So I'm going to have Alan flesh this out a little bit. Yeah, thanks, Christy. So, um, uh one of the one of the questions that we have has to do with sort of uh, how was the community in, in the Matthews community developing and and how, we don't really know a precise date of of Matthew's gospel. Uh, we think it's you know eighty to ninety um, CE, but um, 
otherwise we, we really don't know anything specific. Um, and one of the things that's, that's interesting is, is if you compare um, the letters of Ignatius, uh, now, Ignatius was one of the early church fathers, and um, he wrote letters to churches. Um, and um, in his letters, and this is, again, this is early second century, in his letters, um, he refers to bishops functioning in a role that is very similar to what we would understand bishops functioning in today. They, they, were, they were leaders who had authority over a num- several churches in an area. Or a region, even right, 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 and right. and so um, you know, so by the time of the early second century, maybe uh, one ten, one twenty, you know, we, we have this development of a of a clear structural hierarchy in in the church. Mm-hmm. The question is, you know, obviously that didn't just spring out of nowhere, and so right. uh, you know, when did that process start, and and you know, how how did that affect some of the first century? Uh, churches and even how is it reflected in, in in like the gospels perhaps, and so one of the questions regarding Matthew's community is whether or not they had a developed um, uh, institutional kind of structure, or whether they were still more of a sort of a quote unquote charismatic community. In other words, a community that was that was focused around the gospel and and not so much focused as an institution and focused around structures of authority and leadership. And and it's it's really kind of an open question in New Testament scholarship that, that as to as to where Matthew's community would, would fall down because we just don't have that much information reflected in Ma- in Matthew's gospel about the community mm-hmm. he was addressing. Most of what we can right. come up with, we're kind of having to read between the lines of what we find in Matthew's gospel, mm-hmm. and and what we find elsewhere in the New Testament. So the so the, this is the question, you know, what was there were there leaders who were identified leaders who had mm-hmm. authority roles or authoritative roles or or, or had positions of respect um, in the in the church of Matthew in Matthew's community, um, and and you know if so, <laughs> you know what did that look like, right. um, and and that kind of plays into then that that angle that I was bringing in in my segment about the possibility that maybe they're one of the reasons why Matthew goes at, at such length, because Matthew 23, this whole set of woes and everything, this is mostly Matthew's composition. Right. And, um, you know, he's, he's, he is borrowing from, from, from Q to some extent, it looks like, but um, he's heavily, heavily rewriting it. And um, so, you know, why is Matthew so interested in, in this particular issue? Um, was it because he was trying to engage in, in defending the, his Christian community against the, the rabbis who were leaders of the synagogues that were attacking them? Or was it because he saw problems in the leadership right. of his own community? I think it's an interesting question, and obviously we know that at least by the time to get to Nicaea, we've got a whole bunch of leaders, right? And we have church fathers we're identifying. Well, even before then, yeah. Exactly. And we have, of course, scripturally, right? We Peter and the tradition of Peter as being the Bishop of Rome and all those things that the organization has to start, and yet at the same time, we know that there are these periods of persecution. So we know there's periods where Christians are fending for themselves underground. So 
how, you know, I used to ask my confirmation class to think about how, how authority begins, you know, how, mm. how you, you form the, you form the, the sand baseball league and with all the kids getting together, well, who, who gets to establish the rules, who gets to decide what time the games are, who gets to decide who plays pitcher and who plays outfield and leadership eventually emerges and you wonder if this is what he's dealing with. And I think it's a really interesting question. Yeah. Uh, Lutz actually addresses that issue. You know, he, he, he asks mm-hmm. the question of how can a church in which there are professors, prophets, administrators, organizers, pastor, pastors, and bishops become a church of equals, of brothers and sisters? Right. Because, you know, the power of these um, special brothers and sisters does not, first appear when they lay claim to titles and honors, but when they have special knowledge or special moral authority or special competence. And so, you know, people, you know, for example, as a pastor, people tend to look to me as sort of the expert in questions of what does the Bible teach? And, and you know, that, that puts me in a position by definition because of my training, because of my experience, because of my competence. And, mm-hmm. and so, you right. know, how do, we, how do we practice a church of brothers and sisters who are all servants to one another in a, in a setting where you have people with different competencies and, and different, different um, abilities? Well, and, you know, you've raised another question as well there. You know, we might talk about spiritual gifts and people mm-hmm. have these different things and they're all equal. And yet at the same time, one of those probably is leadership, which right. sometimes doesn't feel equal to care. I mean, I think we we'll run into that at our churches now. How many people feel that being a session member, in fact, I think we've read it, is a little better than being a deacon, right? I mean, <laughs> yes, indeed. deacons just junior session members that are supposed to get there. I right, mean, that's right. kind of how it's been you, treated. You, you, over you the get years. them on the deacon board to train them for the session, right? Yeah, which <laughs> right? is not true at all. No, but not at all. We see that as being kind of, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. unfortunately, how it works. And I think we're doing better. Um, actually, the practice of the church I'm in is that it, the deacons are the ones that serve communion and not the session, which is huh. really an interesting, interesting. Yeah. thing that they've been, they have done. Um, I think we need both of them to do it, but that's beside the point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and to me, I think it falls upon the, the person in leadership to adopt mm-hmm. this, this mentality of, of humility and a servant attitude and recognizing that we're all equals. You know, um, you know, I've uh, so I mean, obviously, I have a Ph.D. in biblical studies and I've taught and and, and been a pastor mm-hmm. for many years. And so that that alone gives me competence and experience and expertise, you know, that people respect and look up to. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, from my for my part, I insist that I'm I am. It's just one man's voice. This is just one man's voice. This is just one man's opinion. And, um, you know, um, we make these, we make decisions together and, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, we serve together and we, we're all on the same level. And um, I, I don't know. I, I, for me, I guess that's the way I've always approached it is, is mm-hmm. you know, that, that I try to be very intentional about adopting that mentality and mm-hmm. about um, ensuring that, 
at least my the 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 attitude that I project is one of of humility and equality, mm-hmm. and not one yeah, of yeah. not right, one of right. claiming special privilege or prestige. Right, right, exactly. But it's you pointed out though when you have somebody that comes to you with an interpretation that is that is could be undermining to someone else, you kind of have to step in and correct that mm-hmm. right so it is that interesting balance of of trying not to step out of your space but act but but do take the role that you've been called to do and well it's it's it's, that it's, is, is interesting. it's moral leadership you know and that's yeah. that's that's what it's called it's moral leadership you lead by by not by coercion not by by the power of your title or position right. but rather more by the influence of your character and by right. by the influence of 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 presenting a persuasive um um argument perhaps right. or 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 just by by living what you by practicing what you preach you know to come back I to our text with, yeah i agree with both of those and i think this idea that you're putting forth an argument that you're not necessarily coming out and condemning, but you're saying, I'm laying it out here. Yeah. This is why I see it this way. Scriptural. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like that. Um, how you frame that. I think Mm -hmm. that's really important. Mm -hmm. And I think the danger is, and I think we've seen it happen is as people start to get feathers in their cap and they start to, uh, they start to elevate themselves. Um, goes to their head. (laughs) <laughs> without, without, I saw this, and I, I don't, I don't know the whole background, but there's a, a a leader within the church tradition, and he's decided that he should charge people money to have a picture with him, and oh. I start to think, ooh, oh, so are you elevating now? Maybe, and this is what I don't know, and this is what I'm hoping is that the the picture with him that he's charging for, maybe that's all a fun and going to like charity or right, something. I mean, right, that's my hope. Right. Uh, the, and I don't know mm. the background of it, but I, my impression is I deserve this. I have reached a certain level where people respect mm. me, and therefore I charge money for it, and yeah. that you know for my person, and that kind of bo- if that's the case, that really bothers me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the whole issue of if somebody puts something out there that 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 I, based on my experience and expertise, um, feel to be problematic, like an interpretation of scripture. Mm-hmm. One of the things I found is, especially in a church setting, you know, I cannot correct anyone <laughs> right. on that kind of thing. All I can do is keep presenting, you know, it, it may keep coming up as it keeps coming up. I keep presenting my point of view and, and, and the scriptures that, that, that support that and just, you know, continue to just state my case as, you know, clearly, but, you know, humbly as possible and hope that at some point, you know, that, that, um, that might influence somebody, you know, in a, in a, to go in a different direction. Um, mm-hmm. be, because, you know, it really, even though you, you really have to be careful with it because, you know, there's some people with whom I seem to have a great deal of moral authority and they, they look up to me and respect me. And there are other people who, um, I mean, it's not like they're, they're, they're opponents, but they, they just are more, I think, um, 
well, this is what I've always believed, and you're saying something different. And so right, I'm going to stick right. with what I've always believed. Uh, I have a lot of that. Yeah. I have a lot and, of that. And so, I, and, you know, when you, get the, when you handle that kind of tricky situation, you, you have to be, I think you have to be really careful and, and tread lightly. And, and, you know, I think we can, we can state our position and why we believe it, but then we have to just leave it. Hopefully we're planting seeds, and maybe one day those seeds will bear fruit. That's, I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> and how often does that happen? It's <laughs> it does happen sometimes. Yeah, it, it does happen sometimes, yeah, right? Yeah. Um. So it's you know I just I just did a wedding and it's really interesting. Um. I find I find alcohol such an interesting thing. I don't drink, but um. And I, Alan doesn't either. But I um. I was thinking about uh, you know, people that will be like. Oh, Oh, it's the pastor. We can't have alcohol versus the, oh, we're going to have alcohol here anyway. They don't have to drink versus the, here, here, pastor, here's a drink. And I just find that really, really interesting as mm. how their values or how they how they view me, what position right. they put me in. Right. Is, right. Oh, she's like everyone else. Here, here's her, here's her drink or, or this assumption of, well, it's okay if we drink, but we sure don't think you should drink or the, Oh, we'd never serve alcohol around a pastor. Very interesting. <laughs> I, I had a, I briefly served a church in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I had a man in that church who always called me Dr. Brain. And I tried oh. to say, I tried to say, please call me Alan. You don't have to call me Dr. Brain. He always called me Dr. Brain one time. And he was, he was very friendly about it. Very kind, kind man, very supportive, you know, but he just always insisted. He was, he was one of those old school guys, you know, very, very old school about a lot of things. And, and, you know, and, you know, he made the, he made the point one day, well, you know, on the, on the door, it says pastor's office. Should we just say Alan's office? And, you know, he, he the point he was making oh, was right, that I, right. I do, I did hold a position, you know, mm -hmm. of, of authority and, and influence and, um, you know, uh, uh, he was, I think he was trying to pay due respect to the work I had done to earn a PhD. And I, I get nice. that. I get that. And That's so, nice. you know, I think, I think there's room for us here to be, be practical about this. You know, it's one thing for people to respect us for, uh, the work we've done or for the influence we have or for the, our character or for, you know, the leadership that we've exercised. Mm -hmm. It's another thing entirely, I think, for us to demand and expect some kind of elevation or, or some kind of privilege right. or prestige. And, and you know, I, that's, I think that the latter is what Matthew is really concerned about here. Right, right. I think so, too. I think so, too. Well, I hope that's a, a fun discussion for you all. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word.